Our scripture reading this afternoon is from Psalm 51. This is in connection with Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It's also, you hope to have Lord's Supper next Sunday in Psalm 51. It's a very good psalm to meditate on in preparation for the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Because it's a psalm that teaches us about repentance, what repentance really looks like. And you'll discover here that in Psalm 51, of course, David knows how great his sins are in this psalm, which he penned after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. But yet he also clings to and trusts in God's grace and mercy. So Psalm 51 is our scripture reading. Let's read that psalm together. You can see the heading over that is to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And there we read the word of God as follows. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. And you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness, that the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. And a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. And that singing response to this from Psalm 51 in our book of praise, uh, stanzas 2 and 6. This afternoon we look at the Word of God as we confess it and have it summarized in Lord's Day 5 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And just the first part, two question answers, 12 and 13 of our Heidelberg Catechism. Let's read that together. You can see the heading over that. The second part, our deliverance. And there in question 12 we ask, Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, 
How can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, we must make full payment, either by ourselves or through another. Can we by ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Let's sing after the sermon from Psalm 25, 1, 3, and 5. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, are you good at admitting things? Admitting when you've messed up, when you've got something wrong? Who forgot to put the milk back in the fridge? Not me. Who ate the last cookie? Not me. You might think that your family has an extra child with the name, not me. People are quick to point out the President of the United States seems to not like to admit that he's wrong. He's tweeted the most outlandish things at times, never a word of apology, never an admission that he got something wrong. But that is in all of us. I mean, just look at Adam and Eve in the beginning. After the first sin, do they then admit what they've done? That is the very last thing that they do. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Adam completely fudges on things. And he talks more about the effect and the consequences of his actions than what he's really done. The woman you gave me, she gave it to me, the fruit. The woman too says, the serpent, he tricked me. They throw everyone else under the bus. God's simple question was, did you eat from the tree? All they had to do was say, yes. You know, here in the Heidelberg Catechism, we are taught to say yes. We have to point out the tone of question 12. The questions of the Heidelberg Catechism are also very important. In the questions too, we confess things as a church. Look at question 12. Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. If you're reading through the Hutterite Catechism in one swoop, you'd realize this is a radical shift. Because Lord's Day 4 has all been about excuses. Oh, God's standards are too high. My sin isn't really that bad. Perhaps God doesn't have to punish. Isn't he merciful? That's all Lord's Day 4, paraphrased. Now here in Lord's Day 5... We're taking responsibility since. In other words, we're being taught to say, yes, I've sinned and I deserve punishment. We all need to come to that point. If God sent me to hell, I would have to accept that. I really have no reason to complain if that is what happened. 
the justice and truth of God demands my death because of what I've done. My eternal death. If there is to be salvation, without a doubt, what does that salvation have to be? What does the Lord Jesus Christ have to do? He has to deal with the punishment that we deserve. In order for there to be forgiveness, there cannot just be a, you know, sweeping things under the carpet, oh, it's not a big deal. There needs to be satisfaction. Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows upon Him with the chastisement that brought us peace. It's in Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. It's very clear when you read that chapter. The suffering servant of the Lord takes the punishment of the people of God upon Himself. Now I want to pause here for a moment. Because this is being challenged hugely today. Also in reform circles. There is a movement afoot that says, you know all this talk about punishment and satisfaction for sin, a sacrifice for sin, that's not actually biblical. That's, that's from the Middle Ages. That's from the time, you know, the Roman Catholic Church ruled in, in Europe and, and there was the sacrament of penance and things like that. Doesn't the Lord Jesus Christ Himself Speak about speak against the temple and its sacrifices. I desire mercy, not sacrifices. He quotes that text at one point. Isn't that in Micah 6? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? No, he wants you to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. A professor at the theological college in Cumpen says this. It is important to distinguish scriptures speaking of Jesus' death as a sacrifice, and now I quote, from dogmatic articulations, statements of doctrine, such as Jesus brings a sacrifice by bearing our punishment in our place as payment for our guilt. In this way, he gives the required satisfaction to God and acquires our salvation. I'm still quoting. This train of thought you do not find in this way in the New Testament. End of quote. What was the death of Jesus all about then, you might ask? The death of Jesus, it said, is about God entering the darkness, the evil, the unbelief of this world and triumphing over it. In the cross we see the greatness of God's love and care for us. And there's all this hatred too when Jesus is put to death. We see a God though who enters that and who does not answer this hatred with more hatred. There is this idea that the death of Jesus, it's sort of, it's something that is to sort of, it jolts us into seeing our sin and how bad things are. It knocks some sense into us. I mean, you might read a, a, a good book or watch a good movie, and if it's a really good book or a movie, it might make you think differently, even live differently. 
there are theologians that say that's what God was doing at the cross in the greatest of ways. Made us think differently. Made us see the evil in this world. What's the problem with this idea? Well, among other things, let me first of all point out, it has a very superficial idea, not only that sin requires justice, punishment, but also the effect of sin. You know, sin is an enslaving power. This is built upon this uh, a minimal view of sin. It assumes that, you know, we can just change If we just see the greatness of God's love, that's all we need to see. We'll come to our senses. The moral influence of the theory of the atonement, it it used to be called. It's based on a very superficial view of the power of sin. But then, yes, secondly, even more so, it denies also the guilt of sin. These theologians have no sense of justice, the justice of God. Punishment? That's barbaric, they say. We instead need to admit God has been offended by our sin and we are in debt, eternal debt as sinners. It is not just that the devil in the beginning in Genesis made us question the love of God and that lie needs to be dispelled. It's also the case that the wrath of God is justly upon us as sinners and needs to be taken away. And that's why we ask this question in the Catechism. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. And that's why right at the very beginning of the answer to, again we say, God demands that his justice be satisfied. We need to confess, as David does in Psalm 51 there, you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. David has not only begun to see and confess his sin, but also the judgment of God. God had a righteous anger against David. He has a righteous anger against you and me as sinners. Even you and I know. If you are not bothered by things, there's something wrong with you. You should be bothered when you consider something like abortion. The loving thing is not to sort of think, oh, this is no big deal. It's the exact opposite. The more godly you are, the more loving you are, the more angry in a good way you will also be. The God who is love is also angry. And he demands that sin be answered, be dealt with in justice and truth. In the Old Testament, God taught this very clearly to the Israelites. 
Look at the great amount of sacrifices in the Old Testament. Sometimes you wonder, you know, what was life like in Israel of old? Just imagine, if you did live according to the laws of Moses, you would be offering sacrifices all the time. And every one of those sacrifices would remind you, God is a holy God, and you are not a holy people. And your sin demands blood. The law of Moses is filled with mercy. It is also filled with justice. In Deuteronomy 21, there is a situation, you know, when you could not, when there was a murder that was committed in ancient Israel and you could not find out who committed that murder, you still had to kill a young heifer. Every unsolved murder still required punishment. Justice was upheld as a pillar in Israel. Can you imagine if we did that today? For the 100,000 babies that are aborted before they are born. We are told in a few places, God will by no means acquit the guilty. Nahum 1.3 When God appears to Moses at Mount Sinai, and Moses hears God's name proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. This is also part of the glory of God. In Romans 3.19, the Apostle Paul talks about how every mouth in the world will be silenced. The background to this is Psalms like Psalm 63 and other places where the psalmist rejoices that one day all the mouths of liars will be silenced. The sinful world is filled with all sorts of lies. My sin is really not that bad. God isn't that angry with me. I do not deserve eternal condemnation. The woman you gave me, she did it. But Paul in Romans 3 sees that our foolish talk must be and will be silenced. A silence where you see your sin and confess it without any ifs or buts. So, is it all over? Is there any hope? That's what we're going to explore in the Heidelberg Catechism. And the answer is yes. There is yet hope. Not because there is a germ of truth to one of our excuses that we've raised in Lord's Day 4, but solely because of who God is Himself. Throughout the prophets, those who proclaim God's judgment, you can also hear. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. 1 Samuel 12, 22. Or Isaiah 48, 2, 11. For my name's sake, says God... It's very humbling. It's not because of anything in us. But also, what a joyful thing to say, for my name's sake, God's own glory is at stake. 
David in Psalm 51. The amazing thing is, he also has that confidence. He says in a few places, blot out all my transgression. I mean, just think of what he has done. And now he dares come before God and say, blot out, not, not me. It would seem to be that that language of blotting out is very close to David. That's often used about the wicked, blotting out the wicked. David is aware of that, but yet he dares say, blot out my transgression. It's almost like David would say, yes, there is hell. I acknowledge that. A place of utter darkness where there is no memory of the living. But Lord, may my sin be put there. Not me. In Isaiah 28, you can read about God who decrees destruction. Isaiah 28, 21. The Lord will rise up to do His deed. Strange is His deed. And to work His work, alien is His work. The Hebrew word there used for alien is, is that's the same word for foreigner. So the judgment of God there is described as almost something foreign to God. You know, like some of you maybe you were born elsewhere. You do speak English, but it's not your mother tongue. When you get excited, when you get older, you might lapse into another language. Perhaps it's a little bit like that too, even with our God. Judgment. God does speak judgment. It does bring Him glory. But yet it says in Isaiah 20, it is His strange deed. God did not form the world simply so that He would have something to judge and cast into hell. Or in Lamentations 3.33, we read, God does not willingly bring affliction or grief to the children of men. That's the translation of the old NIV. Yes, we deserve eternal punishment. But when we look to God, who He reveals Himself to be, then there is a little bit of hope. Moses, who wants to see the face of God, he hears those words, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate. The Lord is glorious, also in glorious ways. That's our second point. So how then can we be saved? That possibility is not ruled out, but the way is very much narrowed down. Full payment must be made either by ourselves or through another. The next question then, can we ourselves make that payment? And the Catechism has one of its shortest answers. Absolutely not. On the contrary, we daily increase our debt. This is not always obvious to us. We love to be do-it-yourselfers. Also when it comes to spirituality and religion, we like to think we can take care of things on our own. 
Is not every other religion in the world like that? We do not really need a savior. We just need some good advice, some instruction, and we can take care of things. The Bible tells us, even our righteousness is like filthy rags. That's later on in Isaiah. Even the best things that we do in life are full of holes and impure in the sight of God. Furthermore, we confess in the Belgian Confession, Article 24, that even the remembrance of but one sin is enough to make any good we might do null and void. You do not try to get out of a speeding ticket by telling the police officer that yesterday you were a very good driver and you never sped at all. A murderer does not get off the hook by talking about all the people he did not kill. Justice is justice. The Apostle Paul, later on in Romans, says, look at the law of God. It's not given to make us realize how good we can be. The exact opposite. It's given to make us how, realize how rebellious we are. Romans 7, 8, For apart from the law, sin lies dead, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. Truly, try to live according to the law of God. I mean, not some sort of pharisaical idea of the law of God. And you will realize what you are left holding. Even your righteousness is like filthy rags. Try to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and all your strength. Try to love your neighbor as yourself. Try to not covet, to deal with even the desires of your heart. And you will find yourself not only failing, but even resisting and hardening in the path of sin. You can practice piano and get better. If you try on your own to live according to the law of God, strangely, it's the opposite. You will find yourself becoming more and more rebellious to your God. Furthermore, even if we were to make payment for our sin, it also needs to be offered in repentance, in perfect humility and love towards our God. I mean, the kind of spirit that David has in Psalm 51. But then imagine that for an entire life where there's an acknowledgement of the perfect wrath of God that we deserve. I mean, imagine disciplining one of your children. You send them to the room, to, the, to their room, but there in their room, they throw another tantrum. They make the room out of mess. Maybe they even punch a hole in the wall or something. I mean, there'd have to be even then punishment upon punishment. That's what it would be like for us as sinners. Would we accept God's judgment properly and suffer it 
sinlessly? Not at all. Hell itself will later be filled with weeping and angry gnashing of teeth. But yet a tiny crack opens up in question in answer 12. We ourselves must make, make full payment either by ourselves or through another. Is that possible even? Can, can someone else make this payment for us? And the Word of God makes it clear. This is actually a possibility. Just like someone can come and pay your financial debts, someone else could come and pay your spiritual debts. When a sin is committed, it's not so much that a particular person has to be punished. But the sin needs to be dealt with. The sin is so heinous, it needs to be answered. If someone else paid for your sin, the honor of God, the truth of God, the authority of God would still be established. It would still be clear that sin is serious and God is the just judge. That is spelled out to the Israelites too. In the Old Testament. You know, the Israelites can lay their hands on a sacrificial animal. What an amazing thing. You could do that? That your sin could be transferred and put on something someone else? The law of God demonstrates the possibility that sin could be carried and borne by another. And it's very clear that the Israelites too begin to realize this. In 1 Samuel 25, Abigail, when she comes to David, her husband's been a fool. She says about her husband's sin, let it be upon me. In fact, she even later calls her husband's sin her own sin. Or Moses, after the sin of the golden calf, he pleads for God's forgiveness, but he also says, if you must punish, punish me. These are your people, Lord, he pleads. Moses has that heart for the people of God, but he also sees. There needs to be punishment. It could be upon him as the mediator. In the book of Micah, God has a complaint against his people. They're not living as his people, even in the face of his wonders and his grace. They continue to sin. How have I burdened you, he asked, yet you have gone your own way? Micah, chapter 6, asks, with what shall I come before the Lord? And that's the question. What does my God want? You can think about that too as you prepare for Lord's Supper next week. Burnt offerings, calves, thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? What's the answer? None of that. What does God require of you to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God? Now, why is that? Why in Micah, for instance, is there no mention of payment? Is it because no payment needs to be made? 
Is it because no payment can be made by us? Even us offering our firstborn, a child dearer than our own life, that would not be enough to save our souls. But payment will be made by God Himself. God will offer His own firstborn, His own beloved Son. Truly God deals with our sin for His own name's sake. He deals with our sin and He makes it clear that He alone is God and that He alone does wondrous things. As sinners, we are in debt more than we can imagine. But God... Can you find that little phrase... Those two words throughout the Bible. But God. But God, rich in mercy, makes satisfaction Himself. You know, if you look around you, on a beautiful day, at night, the stars, the universe, in its vastness, its multitude of stars, proclaims there is a God greater than we can imagine but even more so, our salvation, the multitude of our sins, and yet the gift of the one and only Son for the likes of you and me. Let us give Him glory. Amen.